Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Friday, February the 9th, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Jim Hoffman and myself, Scott Splavik. Now here's Jim with our first story. Thanks, Scott. And uh, we lead off uh, on the front page here of the Quad City Times, article written by Tom Lowy, Anthony Watt, and Thomas Geyer. Uh, who are writers for the Quad City Times, uh, three face charges in homicide. Melissa Weber shook her head and softly sobbed. She quietly repeated, I don't understand, over and over. She was making her first appearance in Scott County Court via video conference. The 49-year-old Weber is accused of abuse of a corpse to hide a crime second-degree arson, and being an accessory after the fact in the January 15th homicides of Brian L. Goodwin and Amy uh, M. Smith. Weber made her first appearance after Adriana Prieto and Devon Breyert made first appearances for their alleged roles in the double murder. Prieto and Breyert are each charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the killings, which were discovered after the Davenport Fire Department was called to Goodwin's apartment at 5210 North Division Street at 3.57 a.m. January 16th. Brayett and Prieto are also charged with two counts each of assault while participating in a felony causing serious injury and abuse of a corpse. The pair also are charged with one count each of second-degree arson, going armed with intent, possession of his firearm by a felon, use of a dangerous weapon in the commission of a crime, and possession of a controlled substance. Prieto and Breit, who live at the home with Goodwin, were arrested on other charges just before midnight Thursday, January 18th at the Quickstar gas station on West 65th Street in Davenport. According to the arrest report, Prieto was in the passenger seat of a white 2015 Ford Explorer and was riding with Brayett and the driver. The Explorer's driver, who said he was simply driving Prieto and Brayett to another vehicle, said he had picked the couple up from a residence in the 1000 block of College Avenue. Weber lives in an apartment on that block, according to court records. Prieto was held on multiple felony charges, including bonds of $1 million each for being a felon in possession of a firearm and a probation violation. Brayett also was charged with being a felon in possession of a firearm and his bond was set at $1 million. During Thursday's first appearance for the charges connected to the homicides, Prieto, who also has the last name Blake, waived her preliminary hearing and will make her next appearance at 11 a.m. February 29th. She is being held on a $500,000 cash-only bond. Brayett and Weber are slated to make preliminary appearances at 10 a.m. February 16th. Brayett's cash-only bond was set at 500000 
while Weber's cash-only bond is $100,000. Details of the alleged double murder. According to the arrest affidavits filed by Davenport Police Detectives, Brandon Askew and Eric Robinson between 4.30 and 7 a.m. on Monday, January 15th, Prieto and Brett killed Goodwin and Smith. Prieto and Brett, along with Weber, then placed combustible materials inside the residence where the bodies of Goodwin and Smith were located, the affidavit said. They then set fire to the materials in hopes of altering the crime scene. The fire damaged the bodies of Goodwin and Smith. The bodies of Goodwin and Smith were found by Davenport firefighters early on the morning of Tuesday, January 16th. Both Prieto and Brett uh, possessed firearms during the commission of the crimes, according to the affidavits. When they were taken into custody on January 18th, they had in their possession 4.3 grams of heroin and 11 grams of meth. After helping to start the fire, Weber helped Prieto and Brett avoid apprehension, the affidavit said. According to a search warrant related to the January 18th arrests and charges, Prieto and Brett were seen coming and going from 5210 North Division Street and the Casey's General Store at the corner of North Division and West 53rd Street throughout the day on Monday, January 15th, and the early morning hours of Tuesday, January 16th, before the report of the fire. The Casey's is located across the street from the home at 5210 North Division, and investigators were able to access the store's video surveillance recordings. After Prieto and Brayett were arrested on January 18th, police seized a number of items from the 2015 Ford Explorer, including Amy Smith's purse with contents and identification, a 22 Ruger mini rifle, a 38 special revolver, heroin and meth, a journal with sticky notes of stolen items, and a digital camera. In another article from the front page of the Quad City Times, Moline Man Charged with Murder. This is written by Anthony Watt of the Quad City Times. A Moline man accused of killing his girlfriend initially told police the shooting was accidental. Evidence collected by police, though, did not corroborate his account, according to Rock Island County court documents. County prosecutors have charged David Jamal McAdams, age 35, with first-degree murder, concealment of a homicidal death, and unlawful possession of a weapon by a felon, according to county court records. Authorities accuse McAdams of killing the woman on February the 2nd, court records state. Rock Island County Coroner Brian Gustafson identified the victim as Victoria Tillotson, age 43, of Moline. An autopsy is scheduled for Friday. Her body was found in a vehicle in a parking lot of an apartment building in the 3600 block of 25th Street in Moline around 11.45 a.m. Wednesday. She and McAdams were in a relationship, according to court records. Police first learned of Tillotson's death from McAdams himself, records state. 
On Wednesday, he came to the Moline Police Station and told officers he had fatally shot her several days ago, according to court records. At first, McAdams told investigators his gun accidentally discharged as he and Tillotson sat in a vehicle in the parking lot of their apartment complex in the 3600 block of 25th Street, court records state. McAdams told police that he knew immediately that Tillotson was dead, so he did not try to get help, records state. Instead, he covered her with a blanket and left her inside the vehicle. McAdams's account to police included a detailed timeline of events, records state. The department tracked McAdams' movement using camera images, authorities allege in court records. That evidence disputes the timeline McAdams provided. Physical evidence, including the position of the injuries on Tillotson's body, also does not match McAdams' account of what happened, court records state. He later told investigators, investigators that he disposed of the gun, shell casings, his cell phone, and a broken piece of jewelry before he went to the police station. Police arrested McAdams Wednesday, and he remained in custody Thursday, according to the Rock Island County Jail website. He made his first appearance on the charges on Thursday afternoon. His next appearance has been set for Friday, court records state. Jim? Thanks, Scott. And uh, we have another article here, Dancing Love Stories, uh, Ballet Quad Cities Dancers Prepare New Production. This written by Gannon Hannewold of uh, the Quad City Times. During a rehearsal at the Ballet Quad City Studio this week, a dozen dancers suspended in the air. While watching them prepare for Love Stories, the company's newest production, it's reasonable to expect a massive thud when they land on the ground. But there was no crash. As their feet hit the floor, there was simply a rumbling vibration. Yes, ballet is as delicate as it seems. It's also rigid, calculated, competitive, and requires immense physical skill and teamwork. More than anything, its dancers say it's expressive. It's an art form. The show this weekend is an ensemble production with guest choreography from Domingo Rubio, an Italian-Mexican dance veteran and frequent visitor to the Quad Cities. It will also feature a story ballet choreographed by uh, Ballet Quad Cities Artistic Director Courtney Lyon of the wild western tale of Billy the Kid with music by Aaron Copeland. Like any career in the arts, working in ballet is a pipe dream for many. After all, there are more dancers than there are careers in dance. Ballet Quad Cities owner and CEO Jody Cook, who has helmed the local uh, ballet company since 1996 said it's common to have over a hundred applicants for open spots on the team. Being a dancer with Ballet Quad Cities is a full-time job with a 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday schedule. Many members of Ballet Quad Cities have come to the area from across the country just for a chance to keep their dancing dream alive. Members of this season's roster have hometowns from Cambridge, Massachusetts, 
to San Diego, California, and almost everywhere in between. Marcus Pei, who will play the uh, titular character in Billy the Kid, is one of just a few dancers on the team from near the Quad Cities. The 26-year-old dancer is an Iowa City native and University of Iowa graduate, where he earned a dual degree in mathematics and chemistry. He's wanted to be a dancer since he was eight years old, and when his dancing career is eventually over, he noted that many male ballet dancers compete into their late 30s. He plans to pursue teaching. His thought process all runs through the filter of ballet. I feel like dance is really just all-encompassing, he said, his voice dropping to a whisper as the company discussed technique in the room next door. It's a metaphor for a lot of different fields. I can think of everything in my life uh, in terms of dance. Another ballet Quad Cities dancer, 24-year-old Madeline Rohde, uh, chimed in. You have to be smart to be a dancer, she said. I don't think a lot of people realize that outside of the dance world. There are so many layers that people just don't understand. Lyon, who did the original choreography for the Billy the Kid section, among other portions of love stories, said Ballet Quad Cities usually takes about five weeks to rehearse choreography. But Lyon sometimes planning, starts planning her routines years in advance. There's just so much that goes into making the experience for the audience come together, Lyon, a former ballet Quad Cities dancer herself, said. I love having a hand in every part. As the company rehearsed for love stories on Wednesday, the art was emotional and geometric. When Pei performed the gunfight scene from Billy the Kid, his facial expression grew stoic, locked into one of the many mirrors lining their Rock Island studio. Around him, dancers shifted in triangular formations, dancing with military precision from one horizontal line on the studio floor to another. In the far corner, teammates laughed with one another as they exited the stage dressed in blue jeans and plaid shirts. We all hang out outside of this, Rhodey said. We put our trust in each other because for one, we have to, with it being a small company. Rhodey, who got her dancing start in her hometown of Milwaukee, said that trust has been returned by the community too. I'm going on five years that I've lived here and I'm just continuously blown away by how many arts groups and organizations are in the Quad Cities. And heavily supported, she said. I think it's just incredible. Both Rhodey and Pei urged those who haven't seen a ballet before to stop by for a show, noting that seeing a performance requires no prerequisite experience with dance. At the end of the day, it's all entertainment, they said. Love Stories will show at Bruner Theater on Friday and Saturday, with both shows starting at 7.30 p.m. Tickets start at $30 for adults and $15 for attendees under 12. I'm going to turn over to page A3. 
stick with local news. And I'll read this article entitled, Architect Creates Spokeyard. Moline Building Envisioned as Multi-Use Retail Space. It's written by Gretchen Teske of the Quad City Times. Cyclists and other recreationists could soon have a new destination near the Great River Trail in Moline. Conceptual drawings show the building at 318 River Drive in Moline will be known as Spokeyard, a multi-use retail space just blocks from Sylvan Island. Andrew Dasso, the principal architect behind the team at Streamline Architects and Artisans, which owns the building, said the concept revolves around creating a destination that can be a stop along the way of those enjoying the nearby trails. A lot of what my vision for this property is that it is an accessory to the bike path, so it really becomes a destination on the Great River Trail, he said. Dasso and his wife previously lived in Des Moines before moving back to their native Quad Cities. While in the capital city, they noticed breweries and shops were along the bike paths, making them destinations for cyclists who wanted to place us, who wanted a place to stop along the way. We had been exploring and canvassing the Quad Cities, and when this building came up for sale, I thought about the potential this place could have, he said. Previously, the building was home to Trachtenberg Company, a plumbing supply company. Before Streamline acquired it in August, it was being used for storage. With the building less than two blocks from Sylvan Island, Dasso felt it would be per the perfect spot for the adaptive reuse concept of reviving an area that had all these industrial buildings and integrating new ideas and concepts to create more of a community. We work within the walls of the space and the building to create really intimate environments throughout, he said. That's our hope with Spokeyard. The concept for the building would have bicycle-centric developments where cyclists can drop by on their route and rest. Right now the concept is still in the early stages and Dasso is actively looking for tenants who want to be a part of the project. Construction will start once businesses are committed to the idea and the team knows what to design and build, he said. The space lends itself to a variety of retail components such as bike shop, gym, salon, and the aforementioned brew pub and coffee shop. Dasso said if the team is able to find the right tenants within the next few months, construction could start as early as this spring. Information on leasing the space and, an array and any upcoming updates can be found online at spokeyard.com. I'll read one more short article here. Foundations Accepting Grant Applications The Doris and Victor Day Foundation the Ranch Family Foundation 1 and 2 and the Rock Island Community Foundation are currently accepting grant applications for funding in 2024. Doris and Victor Day applications are due on May 31, 2024. Rauch Family Foundation 1 applications are due on July 31, 2024. Rauch Family Foundation 2 applications are due on October 31, 2024. And the Rock Island Community Foundation applications are due on June 30th, 2024. Since its founding by Doris and Victor Day in 1965, the foundation has worked to make a better Quad Cities a reality. 
The foundation provides grants to nonprofit organizations and programs in Rock Island and Scott counties. The Rausch Family Foundation One was established by brothers Albert and Les Rausch in the late 1980s. Grants are restricted to nonprofits that serve the citizens of the city of Rock Island. The first investments in the Rock Island Community Foundation came from the eight founders on April 16, 1967. Each member reached into their pockets and donated $20 apiece. Board members of RIFC are still required to provide an annual gift to the foundation. The foundation also is funded through gifts, bequests, and grants from the citizens of the, com of the community and area businesses. Grant information and access to be, excuse me, access to the shared grant portal can be accessed at dayfoundation.org and rockislandcommunityfoundation.org. For more information about the application process, call area code 309-788-2300. Jim? Thanks, Scott. And uh, going to the culture page of the Quad City Times, previewing the Super Bowl ads. Uh, this written by May Anderson and Wyatt Grantham Phillips. Uh, they are AP business writers. <clears throat> this comes from New York. If you watch the Super Bowl for the commercials, you no longer have to wait until the big game to see what advertisers have in store for viewers. Many companies now release ads ahead of the game in the hope of capitalizing on the buzz that builds as the game approaches. They hope to recoup some of the reported $7 million that's the going rate for a 30-second spot by capturing pregame attention. It's a big challenge to stand out among the 50-plus advertisers that will be vying for the eyes of the more than 100 million people expected to tune in this year to CBS and Paramount Plus and Nickelodeon on Super Bowl Sunday, February 11th. Last year's broadcast on Fox was watched by a record 115.1 million viewers, according to Nielsen. So advertisers pull out all the stops, and the ads released ahead of the game so far, Budweiser focuses on its iconic Clydesdales. Michelob Ultra capitalizes on the iconic star power of soccer legend Lionel Messi. And Uber Eats goes for laughs with an ad where Jennifer Aniston forgets she starred in Friends with David Schwimmer. Many more commercials are expected to be released ahead of the game. Of course, not all advertisers release their ads ahead of the game, so there will be surprises. Big advertisers like Amazon have stayed mum on ad plans so far. And while there have been no indications of such, it remains to be seen whether advertisers will capitalize on this year's Taylor Swift buzz in some way. Here are some of the buzziest ads that have been released so far. Booking.com. Actress Tina Fey has so many choices on the online travel agency Booking.com site, she has to hire body doubles, an, influence, or an influencer type played by her 30 Rock co-star Jane Krakowski to stay at a fancy hotel, a Bigfoot handled by another 
Thirty Rock co-star Jack McBrayer to stay at a cabin, and even actress Glenn Close, who stays on a farm. Bud Light, the Bud Light genie grants wishes, like giving someone 80s metal hair and someone else a giant bicep. To Bud Light drinkers, NFL legend Peyton Manning, rapper Post Malone, and more also appear on screen. Budweiser is bringing back familiar characters to its game day slot. In the beer brand's nostalgic ad, a snowstorm threatens to derail a delivery to a small town bar. But a team of Clydesdales and a Labrador Retriever team up to help Budweiser make the delivery. Doritos Dynamita. Two grandmotherly women, Dinah and Mita, chase after Top Gun Maverick uh, actor Danny Ramirez, who took the last bag of Doritos Dynamita from a store shelf, leaving actress Jenna Ortega behind. Dove. Dove's ad begins seemingly whimsically showing young girls having mishaps playing sports to the tune of It's the Hard Knock Life. But the ad cuts starkly to a girl looking self-consciously in the mirror. The message, low body confidence leads to girls quitting sports, not the mishaps. Google, Google's heartstring pulling ad follows a blind man as he uses guided frame. Google's A1 uh, uh, art, artificial intelligence powered accessibility feature for the Pixel camera that uses a combination of audio cues, high contrast animations, and tactile uh, vibrations to take pictures of the people and places in his life. Hellman's. In an ad for Hellman's, Kate McKinnon makes an unusual discovery. Her cat can talk. Well, sort of. Her furry friend can say one word, meow, which skyrockets her to celebrity status and causes a mayonnaise-buying frenzy. The Mayo Cat becomes so famous that she even dates, and soon dumps, Pete Davidson. Michelob Ultra, Lionel Messi's Super Bowl debut, shows off his soccer mastery and apparent loyalty to Michelob Ultra. In the ad, the soccer star also gets an assist from NFL legend Dan Marino, and a, a nod from Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis. Mountain Dew, Baja Blast. Aubrey Plaza is always having a blast, whether she is stuck in an elevator or being abducted by aliens, or reuniting with her Parks and Rec co-star Nick Offerman while riding dragons. M&M's, retired Miami Dolphins quarterback Dan Marino, uh, uh, Buffalo's Blue Smith and, and, and wide receiver Terrell Owens never got a Super Bowl ring. But M&M's and Scarlett Johansson present the almost champions ring to the almost winners. According to Oreo, the key to making life's biggest decision is to twist on it. An ad for the iconic sandwich cookie suggests that even Kris Jenner used the tactic before agreeing to start keeping up with the Kardashians back in 2007. Pringles. After a gas station clerk points out Chris Pratt looks like a man in the Pringles logo, 
he goes viral and starts stars in a movie about Mr. P. Starry, uh, PepsiCo's year uh, old lemon lime soda's debut Super Bowl ad features rapper Ice Spice dealing with a breakup by spending time with the Starry lemon and lime spokes characters. The message: It's time to see other sodas. And T-Mobile, Jason Momoa shows off his singing chops in an ad that shows Scrubs duo Zach Braff and Donald Faison singing about T-Mobile home internet to the tune of Flashdance. What a feeling. Flashdance star Jennifer Beals pops in to spray Momoa with water and ask him to sing it again without his shirt. Oh my. Well, I guess we'll see how those all are on Sunday. In a related article, Usher Ready's Halftime Show. This is written by Jonathan Landrum. Usher found fitting three decades of successful music into a super short Super Bowl halftime show a challenge. But the multiple Grammy winner decided to concentrate on past hits, moments from his popular Las Vegas residency, and possibly draw from his new album. It definitely has been a challenge to squeeze 30 years into 13 minutes, he said, when he addressed the media Thursday in advance of Sunday's Super Bowl, which will be held at Las Vegas's Allegiant Stadium with the San Francisco 49ers facing off against the Kansas City Chiefs. He said he's been asking himself, what songs do people know me for? What songs have been a celebration of all of the journey? But he gave no specific clues on where that process led him and what his take on the global spectacle will look like. Nor did he drop names of who might be joining him on stage, although he did drop vague hints and confirmed that he won't be alone at Allegiant Stadium and, like most Super Bowl performers, will have guest stars. He suggested it would be people he's collaborated with before. I think I made it easy for myself when I decided to have featured artists on songs that became hit records. That gave me the greatest inspiration, he said. I have definitely gone through a lot of ideas of who I would have go through this moment with me. That hardly narrows it down, however, given all the folks he's collaborated with, from Beyonce to Monica to Nicki Minaj to Lil Jon. Usher was a Super Bowl guest star himself with Black Eyed Peas frontman Will I Am in 2011. He told the Associated Press previously that he'd use that performance as a cheat sheet for Sunday's show. On Thursday, he said he had a harrowing moment getting there. My hand got caught on a wire that was holding me 30 feet in the air, and I almost missed my entrance, he said. He still managed to get to hit his mark in the splits but he would prefer to avoid that kind of mishap. Uh, sorry, I did not find the continuation of this story in time. Where, oh, there it is. Usher said he definitely aims to bring the flavor of the city where he made his musical name to his show. His 100-show local residency last year was a perfect workshop to help make that happen. I've been able to bring a great deal of Atlanta and the melting pot that it is musically and culturally to Las Vegas, he said. Wasn't easy to do, but I turned Las Vegas into Atlanta. I took the V and turned it upside down. 
He'll have a hard time topping the reveal that Rihanna gave when she chose her Super Bowl performance last year to show and tell the world she was pregnant with her second child. Usher spoke to the media not in a traditional news conference format, but via an interview with Apple Music's Nadeska Alexis in front of an audience full of reporters that was streamed on its platform and social media sites. It's a busy week for the megastar who is releasing his latest album on Friday and has just announced a North American tour. Now it's time to move to the obituaries, and here's Jim. Thanks, Scott, and we have several today. Uh, I think I'll do the pendings and uh, do one, and, and then we can switch back and forth on some of these. Um, the pending uh, funerals, uh, Helen Verlee Fry, 82, of Moline, Illinois, Daniel Dan Edwin Andrus, 80, of Geneseo, Illinois, Marilyn J. Lockard, 96, of Clinton, Marjorie J. Buckrop, 98, of Moline, Nels R. Lindell, 81, of East Moline, Gary D. Anderson, 76, of Moline, and Johnny Lastly, 94, of Moline. And uh, so on with the obituaries here. Carol Richard Dick Collins, 97, of Davenport, passed peacefully in his sleep on Thursday, February 1st, uh, at Senior Star Memory Care. Per his wishes, cremation services have been performed. A memorial service will take place Saturday, March 9th at 12 o'clock noon at Wirtz Funeral Home, uh, and visitation will be held at 11 o'clock a.m. until time of service. Inurnment will take place at a later date at Rose Hill Memorial Gardens in Marshalltown, Iowa. In lieu of flowers, please give donations to the Alzheimer's Association. And online condolences may be expressed at www.wirtzfh.com. Dick was born on August 22, 1926, in Marshalltown, Iowa. He married Edith L. Petker on April 8, 1950, in Council Bluffs, Iowa. She preceded him in death on February 20th, 2014. One daughter, Carol, also preceded him in death on January 28, 2020. <clears throat> Dick learned to fly while still in high school in Albion, Iowa. After graduation, he joined the Army Air Corps as a cadet, hoping to become a pilot. However, the war was winding down and there was no need for new pilots. Dick was a good trumpeter and during his service played in a dance band with many famous musicians at bases in Texas. After his discharge, he graduated from Iowa State with a BS in ag education. His first job was in sales with Swift Feed in South Dakota. He was very successful driving 90,000 miles per year to cover his territory. After two years, he returned to help with the family farm. Three years later, he began a career with Brenton Banks. His farm background was invaluable as he quickly advanced within Brenton, ultimately serving as president of the Brenton Bank in Perry, Iowa, for 18 years. 
Dick was very active in the community, serving on several boards, both commercial and philanthropic. He had great insight and clarity and spearheaded lasting improvements in any organization he was in. He loved fishing, hunting, boating, golfing. He made four hole-in-ones, playing cards and spending time with family. After retirement, he and Edie enjoyed many happy years alternating between Naples, Florida and Clear Lake, Iowa. In 2009, due to declining health, they moved to the Quad Cities to be closer to family. Dick was a member of Asbury Methodist Church and would regularly arrive for services more than 30 minutes early so that he could read the Bible. The family is very grateful to the amazing staff at Senior Star who lovingly cared for him for 10 years, especially all the angels in the memory care unit. They are truly part of the family. Survivors include his children, James, uh, spouse Deborah Collins of Sammamish, Washington, and Pamela Snyder of Bettendorf, Iowa. Grandchildren, Sean, spouse Shauna uh, Collins of Sammamish, Washington, Andrea Collins, uh, spouse Alonzo Valesquez of Sammamish, Washington, Nicholas, uh, spouse Lauren Snyder, of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Richard, spouse Evie Snyder of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and step-grandchildren Thomas, uh, spouse Susie Snyder, Jr. of Moline, Sean, spouse Laura Snyder of Dripping Springs, Texas, great-grandchildren Ellie Collins, Grant Collins, Leo Velasquez, and Max Velasquez, all of Sammamish, Washington, and great grandson Ryan Snyder of Colorado Springs. Philip S. Phil Rush, 62, of Davenport, passed away on Tuesday, February 6, 2024, after a long and courageous battle with cancer. Funeral services will be held at 2 o'clock p.m. on Monday, February 12th, at Rungi Mortuary in Davenport, with Visitation beginning at 12 o'clock p.m. following or prior to the service. Phil will be laid to rest in Davenport Memorial Park. And online, online condolences may be left at www.rungimortuary.com. Phil was born May 27, 1961, son of Leo and Darlene <coughs> Herring Rush of Holy Cross, Iowa. He loved cars all his life, beginning with his collection of matchbox cars as a boy. He graduated from Leo High School, graduated from NITI in uh, auto mechanics, and then joined the National Guard in 1979, where he served for 21 years. He worked at Curtis Industries in Huron until 1990, later spending 13 years in hydraulics distribution for Knott Company in the Quad Cities. On June 27th, he was united, 1915, he was united in marriage to Susan McKinney in Clinton, Iowa. They resided in Davenport until the present, and he worked there until he retired due to ill health. Phil loved music and was a talented guitarist. He was a true and loyal friend, a man with a generous heart, 
who brought smiles to all he loved. Phil is survived by his wife Susan, daughter Nicole Hines of Rancho Cordova, California, son Scott Rush of Asbury, Iowa, stepsons Joe and Sean McKinney, his mother Darlene Rush of Holy Cross, Iowa, brothers Joseph, uh, spouse Teresa of Davenport, and James, spouse Tammy of Anthon, Iowa. Sisters Marge McGowan of North Liberty, Iowa, and Anne, spouse Dan Hayes of Pecatonica, Illinois, and many nephews and nieces. He was preceded in death by his father, Leo Rush, and grandnephew, Sean Klein. Sticking with the Davenport obituaries, Kathleen K. Lawson, age 80, of Davenport, who passed away on Wednesday, February the 7th, 2024, at her home. Funeral services and mass of Christian burial will be held at 11 a.m. on Monday, February 12th, 2024, at Family, Holy Family Catholic Church. The family will greet friends from 1 to 3 on Sunday, February the 11th, 2024, at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home. Davenport. Burial will be at Mount Calvary Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Kay's, in Kay's memory to Cafe on Vine or Humility Home Services. She was born on April the 21st, 1943 in San Diego, California. She was united in marriage to John Dennis Denny Lawson on July 24th, 1965 in Des Plaines, Illinois. Kay taught preschool at Growing Tree and Sacred Heart Cathedral in Davenport. She later worked as a receptionist for Mid-American Securities Management until her retirement. She used her many talents to serve her community, knitting and crocheting baby hats, blankets, and booties, hats for the homeless, and sewing quilts for veterans and nursing homes. She was an active member of Holy Family Catholic Church and enjoyed making prayer shawls with the Prayer Shawl Ladies Group. Kay loved her family, her community, and the Chicago Cubs. Online condolences may be made to the family by visiting her obituary at www.hmdfuneralhome.com. The next, Jared Scott Conger, age 47, of Davenport, passed away on Tuesday, February the 6th, 2024, at his residence. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February the 10th, 2024, at Berean Baptist Church, 3103 West 13th Street, Davenport. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. until the time of service. Cremation rites will follow services, and there will be no burial. In honor of Jared, the family asks that those attending wear their favorite sports team or Star Wars apparel. Memorials may be directed to the family. McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home is assisting the family with arrangements. Jared was born March 25, 1976 in Davenport, the son of Jeffrey and Becky Ballard Conger. He was united in marriage to Nicole Nikki DePardo on July the 16th of 1997 in Davenport. Jared worked as a field supervisor for Environmental Management Services in Davenport over 25 years. He cherished his time with his family and numerous friends. 
He was always ready for his wife's next adventure, including paranormal investigations. He loved running away from the spirits the most. Jared had a great appreciation for God's uh, beauty in nature, especially while visiting his favorite places of Estes Park, Colorado, and Rocky Mountain National Park. He and Nikki enjoyed visiting there at least once a year. Playing softball, watching professional wrestling events, and traveling with family were among his favorite pastimes. Jared enjoyed attending sporting events and supporting his children's activities at Davenport North High School. He was an avid Green Bay Packers, St. Louis Cardinals, and Iowa Hawkeyes fan. He was an active member of Berean Baptist Church, served as past president of the FOE Davenport Number no. 235, and on the board of Davenport City Cemetery. He also volunteered for the annual Bix race, handing out water and encouragement to the participants. Online condolences may be shared with Jared's family at www.mcginnis-chambers.com. From, oh, this is also Davenport, Wilma I. Atkinson, age 91, of Davenport, formerly of Bentendorf, passed away on Monday, February the 5th, 2024, at Jersey Ridge Place. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Monday, February the 12th, 2024, at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home, Bettendorf. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. until the time of service. Burial will be at Rock Island National Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to King's Harvest Pet Rescue No-Kill Shelter of Davenport. Wilma was born on October 16, 1932, in Davenport. The daughter of Cletus and Alma Cracklio Smith. She graduated from Davenport High School on June 27, 1953. Married Rodman W. Rod Atkinson of St. Joseph at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Rock Island. In her earlier years, Wilma worked as a secretary at Alcoa, and in the summer, she enjoyed working at Brockway's Strawberry Farm. Above all, Wilma was a devoted wife and mother to her five children. She was known for her delicious baked goods and homemade jam. Wilma loved dogs, growing beautiful flowers, and hummingbirds. Online condolences may be shared with Wilma's family at www.mcginnis-chambers.com. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Dennis L. Boyd, 84, of Bettendorf, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, February 6th. Uh, Visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. on Monday, February 12th, uh, at the Rungi Mortuary. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 13th uh, at St. John Vianney uh, Catholic Church. Memorials may be made to the University of Northern Iowa Foundation directed to the Bradley T. Boyd Memorial Scholarship, and online condolences may be expressed at www.rungemortuary.com. Dennis was born December 27, 1939, to H. Shannon and M. Roma Frankovich Boyd 
in Canton, Illinois. He graduated from St. Ambrose Academy in 1958 and from St. Ambrose University in 1963. He then attended Clark College in Dubuque, Iowa, graduating in 1969 with his MA and earning his uh, EDS in 1990 from Western Illinois University in Macomb, Illinois. On October 13, 1962, he was united in marriage to Ruth Ann Stoltenberg in Devonport. He taught for the Pleasant Valley Community School District, retiring in 2000 after 37 years. He also worked seasonally at the Davenport Country Club for 34 years before retiring in, 19, or in 2018. He was an active member of the Knights of Columbus and regularly volunteered at St. John Vianney uh, Catholic Church. Those left to cherish his memory including, uh, include his loving wife, uh, Ruth Ann, and children. He was preceded in death by his parents and beloved son, Bradley Thomas Boyd. And then from uh, Preston, uh, Grace E. McDonald of Preston, Iowa, passed away uh, Tuesday, February 6th at the University of Iowa Hospital. A celebration of Grace's life will be held from 11 o'clock a.m. to 2 o'clock p.m. Saturday, February 10th at the Millennial Ballroom in Goose Lake, Iowa. Grace was born February 5, 1937, daughter of Ru Rudolph and Carrie Lamp Frazee. She grew up on the family farm in Plugtown between Elvira and Charlotte. Grace attended Elvira High School and graduated with the class of 1954. She went on to Valparaiso University where she studied teaching and history. After graduating, Grace moved back to the area and married the love of her life, John MacDonald. Together, John and Grace raised two children and raised and celebrated 49 years of marriage. Throughout her long teaching career, Grace only taught at two schools, Makokata and Northeast. After retiring from Northeast in 1998, Grace couldn't stay away from her love of teaching and frequently substituted for many classes. <clears throat> she always held the importance of education to the utmost regard and passed on the love of learning to her children and grandchildren. Learning reached beyond the classroom for Grace and her kids and extended to 4-H. Her husband John was a 4-H leader for many years, which also meant Grace took on most of the work. In her free time, Grace loved basketball and baseball. She was a huge Hawkeyes and Cardinals fan. Grace was a 50-year-long season ticket holder for Hawkeyes basketball. If she wasn't enjoying a game in Iowa City, she would be watching her beloved Cardinals on TV. When her son began playing basketball for Clinton Community College and then Marycrest College, she became the biggest fans of those teams too and never missed a game. Grace was a lifelong and active member of Emanuel Lutheran Church. At the center of her life was faith and family. She deeply loved her children and grandchildren and never missed their competitions and school events. Her grandchildren were the apples of her eye. Her favorite thing to do was to spend time with family. 
whether they were going on a road trip to a stock show or just to Makokata for creep feed and Dairy Queen, Grace was happiest when she uh, when her loved ones were with her. Grace will be dearly missed by her son Sean uh, of Preston and two grandchildren. Uh, Grace is preceded in death by her husband John, her son Shannon, and her parents uh, Rudolph and Carrie. Thank you, Jim. Now let's jump over to the sports page quick. We'll start with what's on TV today. At 6 p.m., men's college basketball, ESPN2, Dayton at VCU. 7 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network, San Diego State at Nevada. 8.30 p.m. on FS1, San Jose State at Colorado State. College women's basketball at 6 p.m. on ESPNU is Wagner at Fairleigh Dickinson. 8 p.m. on the Pac-12 Network, it's Oregon State at Utah. And 10 p.m. on the Pac-12 Network, it's Arizona at UCLA. Uh, college gymnastics on the SEC Network at 5 p.m. LSU at Georgia. 6.30 p.m. on ESPN, Arkansas at Florida. And 8 p.m. on the SEC Network, it's Alabama at Auburn. College hockey, 6 p.m., Penn State at Minnesota. College softball, didn't realize softball was getting started already. ESPN, 8 p.m., Texas at UCLA. College wrestling, 6 p.m. on the ACC Network, Duke at Virginia Tech. 6 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Michigan at Nebraska. And 8 p.m. on the Big Ten Network. That's, this is a big one. Penn State versus Iowa. That'll be a big foot, uh, wrestling match there. And Hannah Stulke scores 47 points in victory for the Iowa women basketball team. The score was 112 to 93. Uh, their, their opponent, I believe, was Penn State, right? PSU. Hannah Stulke scored a career-high 47 points, and Caitlin Clark had 27 points. Huh, that's odd. <laughs> As number two, Iowa defeated Penn State, you know, 111-93 on Thursday night in Big Ten women's basketball. Clark now has 3,489 career points, moving within 38 points of the NCAA women's basketball career scoring leader Kelsey Plum. <clears throat> and some quad city quad city swimmers that are going to be competing in the state meet this week. Owen Chillis from Pleasant Valley, who set a state record in the hundred yard backstroke at the district meet Saturday. Will Gorman also of Pleasant Valley. He'll swim at. Big at Indiana next year and owns the top time in the grueling 500 free. Jamison Gray of Pleasant Valley. Eric Ding of Davenport West. Ricky Zilmer of Bettendorf. And Charlie Jacobs of Davenport Central. Congratulations to all of those young men and good luck in the state swim meet this weekend. And other college men's basketball scores. Arizona outlasted Utah in three overtimes. 
105 to 99. That must have been quite the game. University of Alabama, Birmingham, 76. November uh, number 20, Florida Atlantic, 73. Also three overtime. Boy, it was a, a night for three overtimes in the college basketball world. And I'm going to have to call it there and let you know that that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today, Friday, February the 9th, 2024. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.